Acts 8. What we just read in part is what's known as the offense of the gospel, stumbling stone of the cross. It's the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. I wasn't raised in a Bible-believing Christian home. My wife was raised a Hindu, and there are, what, a billion Hindus right now. Um, That statement, that only in Jesus Christ is there salvation, and in none of the other religions. Beloved, that's part of the burden of being a Bible-believing Christian, um, to, to, to make those exclusive claims, which Jesus Christ makes. We don't make them because we just think that they're true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It, it is part of the offense of, of Christ. It's part of the offense of being a Christ follower. Um, and we're going to look at a, a false profession of faith this morning in the book of Acts. It's kind of a heavy passage. I hope I don't, I don't, I don't, I hope I don't handle it in a heavy fashion, but it is kind of a heavy passage. Acts chapter 8. What I'll do is I'll pick up at verse 4, though I'm going to really look at uh, verse 8 um, to the end of 24. It's a big section. I don't intend to subdivide it in further sermons, though I think I could, rightly. I think we'll just take what we're going to take today. But Acts chapter 8, um, you know, I'll just pick up at verse 1. Hear God's holy and perfect word. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that's Stephen, um, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen. They made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, became the apostle Paul, began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He had put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. Many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. They all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. He had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourself, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a holy God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even the angels that had never left their first estate, uh, Lord, they um, fly about your throne day and night. Uh, with um, two wings, they cover their faces, and two wings, they cover their feet, and two, they fly. And they sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We can do, Lord Jesus Christ, what they are unable to do as believers. We can come into your presence with unveiled faces because we're covered with your blood, Jesus Christ. Father, always look upon us in Christ. We pray as we consider this very sober passage that everyone here this morning and that may be listening at future times would truly have um, saving faith. We would truly be born again. That none of us would be found on the last day to to be a hypocrite, a pretend Christian. Uh, What a convicting thing. And we, we pray, Holy Spirit, that the thoughts of the weak and the world, which just so burden us, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would push them aside for just a little bit, that we would set our minds on things above and not so much on things below, and that our eyes would see you, Jesus Christ, and you would be glorified and exalted, even through the ministry of the Word, especially as we anticipate taking your supper, Jesus, where we commemorate and, and we proclaim your death, Lord Jesus, and your life, and your session, and your return, until you come again. We pray this in the Redeemer's name. Amen. My practice, the way that I come in a passage, it's not the only way to do it, obviously, is I'm always looking for uh, the main doctrine of a passage. And I know doctrine is usually considered a bad word to use today, but it just means teaching. So when I come at a text, I kind of take the text. If I'm going to take it as a small passage, I'll try to unpack whatever I can find there. But as a larger passage, which is what I've taken here, I'm kind of going to first look at a macro view. We're going to fly over the passage and see the main teaching. So when you study your Bible, I would do that. I was taught to do this as a young Christian by another minister. Look for the teaching. What's the main teaching or the main teachings, themes, subjects? So when we look at the main subject of this passage, I'm going to change the sermon. Title. So the title of the sermon is A False Profession of Faith in Christ. A False Profession of Faith in Christ. That's the main teaching. We have Simon the Magician, Simon Magus, which is magician, Simon the Sorcerer, which is what's getting at. The underlying Greek word for sorcerer or magician is a word that we get uh, pharmacy from. It's the use of drugs. So the people at this time that were magicians would use drugs to affect psychedelic change, part of their magic. This is, every once in a while you'll meet someone who, not so much for me now as an OPC guy, but I used to when I was a carpet cleaner. You meet someone that's smoking dope or doing something else, and they'll say, well, God made cannabis, he made marijuana, it's natural, therefore it's good. And the Bible will say in the book of Revelation that those who commit pharmakia, that drug abuse, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's like being a drunk. So if you think smoking dope is better than getting drunk, it's not. But that's the underlying word for these magicians. And so we're looking at this fellow who professes faith, and he, he's, he, he's not discovered for a while. And then ultimately, by the end of our passage, we discover that he is an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit informs the Apostle Paul. He says, you're still in the gall of bitterness. 
you're in the bondage to iniquity. You're still in your sins. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. Though previously we thought you were a believer. So this is a false profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now the outline of this passage, I'm ne- I won't get to do. If you ever, if you want my sermon notes, I'll send them to you. You can line your birdcage with them. I have way too much here for one sermon. But the way that the outline of this passage would, would run, I won't get to preach it, but will be this. The first thing I want to consider is the usefulness of negative scriptural examples, which this guy is one. He's a negative. He's <laughs> don't do like this. So the usefulness of negative scriptural examples. The second thing I want us to consider is the reality of a false profession of faith. This guy says I was, I'm a believer in Jesus. He believes, but then we find out the Holy Spirit says you don't believe. There is such a thing. So sometimes people think, well, you're just playing fast and loose with the Bible. You just say something that the Bible doesn't really say. There's always a possibility to do that. When anyone walks in this church, I say regularly, don't believe me because I'm saying it. Be a good Berean, Acts chapter 17. You look at your Bible and think, is that guy saying what the Bible says? And if I don't, if I throw it high to the right, then you throw it high to the right. You pitch it, but if it's Bible, if it's what the Bible says, we have to receive it. So then our question is, is this thing of making a false profession, saying you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus, but ultimately not being a Christian, is that a true biblical thing? And the answer is yes. So the benefit of scriptural negative examples, the reality of a false profession of faith, it's also significant, the third point would be the time that this fellow Simon makes uh, his false profession. It's during a time of what I would call a revival. That's significant. And then the fourth, fourth thing is the ignorance of it. That the church, the apostles, we have, what, we have the apostle Peter come down. We have the apostle John come down from Jerusalem. We have the evangelist Philip, the rest of the church members, as it were, the, new, the newly formed church in Samaria. They don't know that he's a false believer. He professes faith. They think he's a true believer. So I would argue perhaps even he's ignorant of his own unbelief. So there's an ignorance, and I'm not using that as a pejorative. It's just, it's the term. The ignorance that this person is not a Christian. And when you think, well, is that also a biblical thing? Sure. When, the, uh, uh, when Jesus says it, maybe I'll read it from Matthew chapter 26, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Did the other 11 guys know it was Judas? No. And what did they all say? Lord, is it what? Is it I? Am I the guy? They didn't look and go, hmm, who's the guy keeping the money? It's him. So what we see here is even the church or the ministers of the church, even the apostles, looking around for a time, don't know that this guy is a pretender. And that's significant. And then the last thing thematically that you would see from the text is it's coming out. Is there will be the time of ignorance, but then the manifestation of his unbelief, of the false profession. I use this, there's a verse in um, uh, Numbers 32. I use this, well, sometimes guys engaged in certain particular kinds of sin, which is fairly common for guys to do, which they shouldn't do. And they think they're not going to get caught. There's a, there's a text in Numbers 32, verse 23. Be sure your sins will what? People sin on the sly. We, we do it on the down low. We think that no one, ah, no one knows what I'm doing back here at the house. No. Everything's quorum deo. Everything's before the face of God. Everything we do is before the face of God. And God says, someday your sins, including the sin, which it is a sin, of false profession, 
is going to be publicly known. It's going to be made manifest. And so we have a pretend believer, and then, and then in God's timing, the Apostle Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit, informed by the Holy Spirit to say, Simon, you're still an unbeliever, um, which I would actually argue is a mercy. To be told by God's minister before you are dead, you are a hypocrite. Although it's painful, it's a mercy. Because before we're dead, we still exist in the day of grace. The door to heaven is not closed as it were. The Bible says in Revelation 5 or 6, I forget, I, I open, there, there's an open door in heaven. So this is the day of grace. So if you're still breathing air, there's a door that we can walk through the Lord Jesus to be admitted into heaven and have our sins forgiven. And so if someone says, hey, you're a false believer, um, even as painful as that is, is a very, very, very good blessing and a mercy. Many years ago, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but then I'm going to jump into the body of the sermon. Um, and it's, this is important. A, a young man who was a member of the church from the time he came out of his mother's womb, his dad was an elder, a homeschooler, yada, 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 a reformed Christian, yada, 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 living a certain kind of a life that I had said to him, hey, did you ever repent of your sin? Have you ever repented? What do you mean, pastor? He was a super sweet guy. I liked him. He wasn't being obnoxious. I said, well, you know, have you ever cried like, to God? Have you ever been convicted like sad and grieved? Oh, God, I've sinned against you. Jesus, forgive me. Have you ever done that? And he looked at me like I was a kook. He said, no, I've never done that. And then I said with tears in my eyes, because he was my son's age, I have bad news for you. You're not a believer. You're not a believer. You're in the church, but you're not in Christ. That's this guy. He's in the church, but he's not in Christ. And of course, people quit the church when you say that to them because they're not willing to hear the hard things. Remember John 6, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Sometimes Jesus says really hard things that hit us where we live. And if they're true, remember the Berean, we should receive them, even if they're hard. So it's if you find out sometime in your your life that, hey, maybe I'm not really a believer. I've said I was a believer since I was two, but maybe I'm not. Rather than beating up on the person that maybe shows you that, it would be better to ask the Lord if that's true and then believe upon Christ. So that, that's the main doctrine. That's the outline. I'm just going to walk through and see what we can get out of the passage until we hit times up. Let's look at the usefulness of negative examples in the Bible, which is Simon. He's a negative example. The Bible says about the Bible, of course, we're, I guess, typically a Protestant church. I wasn't raised Protestant. I was raised Roman Catholic. We didn't like, we didn't like Protestants at all. And, but one of the principles of the Protestantism, which we don't usually use the term Protestant, except if you're in a tiny church like ours, um, is sola scriptura, Bible. So the Bible is our rule. The Bible is my rule. So I, when I'm looking for doctrine or practice, I go Bible. The Bible says about the Bible... Everything written in the Bible is for our what? Do you remember what it says? Instruction. The Bible is given to us by God. It's, it's God breathed. The Holy Spirit works in the apostles. He works in the Old Testament prophets. He inspires the New Testament apostles. And they write the very words of God. Thus saith the Lord. It is written. And God gives it to us for our instruction. And when I say instruction, I mean Redemptive instruction, salvific. It's to bring us to God in Christ. It's to save us. It's to 
conform us into the image of Jesus. It's to keep us on the, the way of Christ, chasing after Jesus until we go to be with him. So it's moral or religious instruction. I know I have brothers and sisters in the Lord, brother ministers who use it as a political guide. I don't know. There, there, are, there are perhaps principles that could be applicable to economics or politics, but it's not primarily a cultural change book. It's primarily a salvific book. And I'm using that in the big sense, with the justification sense to bring us to Christ, in a sanctification sense to conform us into the image of Jesus without denying some of the application of the other. So when you come to a passage like this, as sad as it is, sometimes when we come to hard passages, well, we're just we're disinclined to, to hard things. This is why I can't button my suit coat, because I'm disinclined to put in away the ding-dongs <laughs> and, the, and the Dunkin' Donuts. Hard things, we, we, we don't like them. But there are, there are great benefits to hard things. If you hit a hard passage of Scripture, don't say, oh, boy, howdy. This is hurting my feelings. I'm going to find something that I really, really like. Well, you're going to be anemic. You'll you'll be spiritually flabby. So the hard things in God's word can be the most beneficial things. And I'd ask this by way of application, and you know this experimentally. Do you learn more about the love of God in Christ when you're in a valley, hard times, or when you're sitting pretty in Schaefer City on a mountain? When do you learn Jesus' love, his care, his mercy, his power. When? In your weakness, in our weakness, his strength is made manifest. When we are weak, when we're suffering the thorns of the flesh, the temptations of the devil, then Christ's uh, grace is is known to be uh, uh, to us um, evident. So hard things, and this is a hard passage, I would argue... um, are the times of great learning. It was Samuel Rutherford. He's, of course, an English Puritan. I think he's a Scottish guy. And he was one of the Scottish divines on the Westminster Assembly. I have a little quote by him. He was locked up in prison. He has letters of Samuel Rutherford. And he says, when I'm in the the cellar of affliction, I look for Christ's choicest wines. When I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for Christ's choicest wines. He wrote that in prison. So these are not fair-weather Christians. These are guys that learn Jesus when they're going through hard times. So to be told there's such a thing as a false Christian, as hard as it is, is for our good. Now I want to talk about the Bible given to us for our instruction in the ways that we receive the Bible. I know I'm kind of macro view. But there are various ways to be hearers of the Bible. I mean, we have these. If you're not deaf, um, physically deaf, you can hear the Bible Uh, being preached or read or you can read it yourself if you have the ability to read you can read the bible not all hearing the bible is beneficial when god says this is given to you for your instruction jesus says to the devil who's trying to tempt him to go against the bible we are to live underline live on how many words that proceed from the mouth of our god every He says, live on. This isn't just, well, that's an intellectually curious piece of business. That that will make for a nice theoretical discussion with my smart friends over at the coffee shop. God did not give us the Bible so that we would be like the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17. Remember those guys? They they were all allergic to work. They sent their wives off to work. They were go-getters. You know what a go-getter is? The husband drives the wife to work and then he goes back and fools around and then he goes and gets her. That's a go-getter. 
So they were all go-getters. They dropped their wife off at work. She made the money. They were allergic to real work. And then they sat around and they used to like to talk about and hear new stuff all day. Remember those guys? That there's, a, there's an intellectual curiosity. And the Apostle Paul comes preaching Jesus to them and like, wow, this is a really neat thing. But then he gets to where the rubber meets the road. Sin, you're a bunch of sinners. Jesus requires that you repent and you believe in him who was dead for our, died for our sin and risen for our justification. And they say, you know what? We're just sitting here trying to learn some new fun stuff so we could show people on the internet in our, in our blogs how smart we are. Beloved, hearing the word of God with mere intellectual curiosity is not saving and it is not beneficial. I'm kind of, I'm not against, well, I'm not very good with the, the internet anyways, but I know some maybe younger Christians, they love to go in chat rooms and theological smart aleck rooms and show each other how smart they are. If you're reading a ton of Bible, like personally, and you're praying on your knees personally a ton, okay, have at it. But if you're not, I would not do that. Because being a smart aleck is not the same thing as being conformed into the image of Jesus. Am I right with that? I think I am. So intellectual curious hearing is not beneficial. There's also another thing um, that's not beneficial when we hear the word of God. And I would say this, religiously curious hearers. All human beings are religious creatures. Even atheists are religious. Read Romans 1, Romans 2. Everyone's religious. It doesn't matter what people say. I have a brother-in-law who says, I don't believe in God, but he spits fire when he talks about the God of the Bible. Well, you don't get mad about the great pumpkin. If you think God is the great pumpkin, you're not spitting mad. You're spitting mad because you know that God is true. Romans 1.18 to Romans 2.29. You know God is God. That's why they're never spitting mad about the false moon God. They're only spitting mad about the God of the Bible because they know that the God of the Bible is God. And all human beings are religious. We're fallen in Adam, religious creatures. But there's a religious curiosity. Remember, was it Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who used to like to hear John the Baptist talk on religion. Was that beneficial to him when he heard John the Baptist? No, no, it wasn't. He was just religiously curious. And his religious curiosity went away, uh, I think, Solomon, uh, Salome's, was it Salome or Salome's daughter who did a little dance? And uh, he said, for the sake of my, up to half my kingdom. And so he chopped off John the Baptist, the faithful preacher's head, when it rubbed up against his own honor. So being religiously speculative is not beneficial. And and I'm going to say one more thing. Disinterested hearing the Bible is also not beneficial. What do I mean by that? Um, We still live in a Christian nation. I would argue it's a post-Christian, maybe even a neo-pagan nation, but that's another uh, sermon. Sometimes we come to church for various reasons. And if you're a kid, a kid, I don't know what kid would be, but up to 18. You go because your parents tell you you have to go. And when I began preaching in Tallahassee, there was a kid who was 17. He used to count the tiles in the ceiling when I preached because that's how bad I was. <laughs> and I would see him pick his nails and, and, and look at the, the ceiling. Whether I, if I was a garbage preacher, that's on me. But coming to church, God does not give us a, 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 a Bible and God does not give us the opportunity to come to church to hear the Bible so that we would just fill up an hour, check a box, and go away. Um, There are a great many people that are disinterested as they sit under the word of God preached and read. 
So I, I, I'm not against everyone falling asleep when the word is read, or, or I'm very sympathetic. Some guys work a ton, women work a ton. But if you regularly fall asleep under the reading of God's word, I don't know, we'll, we'll drink a pot of coffee. But it, it's, not, it's not beneficial. We are to live upon the word of God. So these negative examples, all of us as, as moms and dads, I think, at least I think this is true. As a mom and a dad, didn't we teach our kiddos, our little ones, both by positive examples and by negative examples, didn't we? I know now modern enlightens are supposed to be super positive in everything. And I'm not against that. I don't think we should be super negative in everything. But there's benefit to saying, little Johnny, little Sally, look at little, Steve, look at little Johnny Shortman across the street. Don't be like him. There's great benefit to, to, to that. Um, negative examples are very, very helpful for us. And I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 14. God, God inspires Paul to walk through a whole litany of the sins of the Israelites when they were, uh, they were professing believers, but they were unbelievers and they were living in their unbelief. And essentially the Holy Spirit says, you see that? Don't do that. A, a lot, even, the, even heaven is described most often in the negative because the positive is too much of a mind blower. Heaven won't, what will be in heaven or what won't be in heaven? There's no more what in heaven. Tears, death, divorce, dying, disease, any of it's described in the negative. Because it's just too, too much of a mind blower for us to understand the positive. Christ will be there in his, his intimate presence. And it's like this with a negative example, we can easily discern wow, being a fake professor, being a drunk, being a liar, being a fornicator, we get that. And so this is here so that we wouldn't be like Simon. Does that make sense? Big picture view. I know that's kind of what's going on. 8 through 24, as I've been saying, this whole section is given to us to show the reality of being a false professor of faith in Jesus. Now, let me back up. I didn't really address this in my written sermon, but this is true in the text. I'll put my former religious upbringing um, uh, hat on. There are two ways to understand Simon's profession. One, he had faith and he lost it, that's the church of my youth, the Roman Catholic Church. I would think, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just using them as, in a polemical way. Uh, or not just the Roman Catholic Church. There are many Protestants that think that you can lose your salvation. Pentecostals think you can lose your salvation. The most of them, I think some Methodists believe you can lose your salvation. So you can lose a true profession. CREC, which I'm not a big fan of, they think you can lose your salvation. So the one way that you could take it is Simon was a true believer and he's not a, a true believer anymore. The way that I was taught in the church of my youth is you are justified in your baptism, you lose it when you commit a mortal sin, and you regain your justification grace through the sacrament of penance. That's the, I understand this passage like a class, classic Protestant. He professes to believe, but he, he never has the true faith. So that's how I'm coming at that passage. Though I do throw that out there just to be fair uh, to, to folks that come at it from another way. And so what was going on when he, Peter says, you're still in the gall of your bitterness, we're told in the text that he believed. The Bible doesn't always make the distinction between those who say they believe and those who truly possess what they say they believe in. So profession of faith is not necessarily the same thing as possessing faith. Does that make sense? Profession of faith is not necessarily the same thing as 
possessing faith. Simon says he believes, he possesses faith, but he doesn't. It's just a profession. And you think, well, that's a strange idea. No, it isn't. Um, lots of people, oh, take a marriage. Marriages start off how? Everybody has wide eyes and they're all happy and they're smiling and everybody's shiny. And the boy stands up, the girl stands up, men and women, and they say, I promise, I swear to God, I'll love you forever, right? I swear to God, I love you. Well, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but lots of people tell lots of people, I love you. They, they profess their love, but they do not possess their love. So this is not a strange con- concept, right? And, 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 and how would you know whether that profession of love is actually a possession of love? It's through life, through words, through deeds. And so this guy, this guy Simon, says, I believe, I love Jesus. The Apostle Paul Peter says later, you wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Not only do you want to buy the Holy Spirit, you want to be able to direct the Holy Spirit for cash so that you can essentially be the Holy Spirit. You don't possess what you profess. And that's what this is, is teaching. Does that make sense? Um, and so that, that, that's what's going on. And this is, again, this is written for us. So we would be like the apostles, not in a, a mad way. I know I'm against navel-gazing, I don't think many Christians are in danger of navel-gazing, navel to tell you the truth. I, I just really don't think so. Um, like, too much introspection. I know Puritans, English Puritans, which I love the English Puritans, sorry. Um, they're always slammed for being excessively introspective. Maybe that would be true for some of them. I don't think anybody in this room is in any danger of going, I don't know, do I love God enough? Do I sin too much? I just don't think so. Uh, we're, we're incessantly absorbed with the things of this, this life. But part of this passage is designed to make us properly introspective. The Bible says, test yourself, not test your neighbor. This is not to look at your mom, or your dad, or your brother, or your sister, your, the person sitting next to you in the pew going, ah, are you Simon? <laughs> are you Judas? No, leave them, leave them alone. You can't know their heart. This is the whole deal of this passage. They didn't know Simon's heart. Who knows Simon's heart? God knows Simon's heart. This is here for us to say, Lord, is it me? Am I a, do I possess the faith in Jesus that I profess to have? Lord, is it me? That, this, that's this. So there is such a thing as a false profession of faith, and I just mentioned it, Judas. The classic example is Judas. Judas Jesus chose Judas he was a member of the visible household of faith, let's say visible church. He's a minister. He's an apostle. And then the scripture says in John 17, he's a son of what? Perdition, which means a fancy word for damnation. And the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 1, towards the end, he went to his own place. Judas is not, I mean, Tertullian, I think, even thought Judas would be saved at the end. He's not. He's, the Bible says he's receiving the wrath of Almighty God. He was in the visible church. He he preached Jesus. He did miracles by the power given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. But he did not know Jesus savingly. That's this fellow, Simon. And what do we learn by that? Again, there are some churches, not just the church of my youth. There are other churches who say, it's our church. It's our five people that are going to heaven. It's our 2,000 people. We've got the corner on total truth. Not just gospel. Because... The Episcopalians, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, everyone that says our only hope in life and death is Jesus, and it's his blood that pays for our sins, 
they're our brother and sister. We share that in common, common ground with them, even though we differ all over the lot in other things. So, so when we come to this passage where a man makes false profession, it teaches us something about the nature of the church, visible church, before we go to the church at, in heaven. The church is a mixed multitude. All churches are mixed multitudes. OPC, I would never in my right mind say it's our little five people in a house cat. We're the only people going to heaven. That's crazy. The OPC is not the only true church. That's crazy, crazy. You go to the all the Baptist brothers and sisters. or so. But the church is a mixed multitude. And what I mean by that is when we, we, we look at, they consist of true believers and false professors. And what do I mean by false professors? We, you join a church by profession of faith and by water baptism. It's how we understand things. But, but you, you're joined to Jesus by spirit-wrought faith. There are some people in the church that say, I love Jesus, and they do. I trust in Jesus, my only hope in life and death. It's his blood that pays for my sins. And when they say that, it's true, and they're truly joined to Jesus. And there are other people who say, Jesus is my only hope in life and death. It's his blood for my sins. And they don't believe it. That's this fellow. Mixed multitude. When the children of God came out of Israel, they were mixed multitude. It means, um, Jesus puts it, I'm not going to read it because I'll go too far afield. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, a couple other places in the Gospels, that the church, his kingdom, which is the church on earth, is like a field. And in the field, there are two kind of things growing in that field. There's a, there are wheat plants, and what's growing next to the wheat plant? A tear plant, which is what? It's a wheat lookalike. It's a wheat lookalike. And so the workers say to Jesus, well, who, who sowed the tear plants? He said, my enemy did this. And then the worker ministers say to Jesus, should we tear up the tares and burn them? He said, no, don't. Why? Because you're going to get it wrong. You'll get it wrong. You'll rip up a wheat when you should have thinking you were rip it, ripping up a tear. Christians cannot. No minister, no church can look at any professing Christian and go, aha, you're a true believer. Aha, you're a phony baloney. I come from New England, Massachusetts. And I met my wife out in Amherst, which um, Jonathan Edwards ministered his first church, his grandfather's church in Northampton, which was near Amherst. And during that time of the 1700s, there was a, a, a New England, there was, a, they call it the New England theology. They thought through a particular scheme that they could discover who exactly was a true believer. That was at the beginning of Edwards' ministry. And as he grew in his ministry, he said, this is not possible. <laughs> this is not possible. He said something like, and I'll butcher the paraphrase, we're like cloudy clouds looking through the clouds trying to look at cloudy clouds, something like that. All we hear is a person make profession. We look at their life. Are they robbing the Swanee Swifty? Yeah, they probably no. Okay. Do we know that they're Simon? Do we know that they're Judas? No. That's God's business. That is God's business. But God knows. And God knows. God knows. There's no perfect church. Um, all churches on the earth, every church you go to, is going to be... My dad who died when I was, what, 34. He used to use this phrase, we're all bozos on the bus. <laughs> we're all bozos on the bus. I don't want to pick on any churches. Even true Christians. If you scratch around in our lives, if you if real people that love real Jesus, if you scratch around in our life, what are you going to conclude? Boy, you're a bozo on the bus. 
Yeah, we're all bozos on the bus. We're forgiven bozos on the bus. Loved. We're being sanctified. But there's no perfect church. So if you're a church hopper, maybe this is a side, no extra charge for this. If you're a church hopper, you know what a church hopper is. You go to Bob's church. Eh, Bob's church isn't perfect. I'm out of here. And then you go to Stevie's church. And then you find out in Stevie's church, they have sinners in Stevie's church. Then you go to Freddie's church and you find sinners there. You know what? You shave the face of a sinner in the morning. You comb the hair of a sinner in the morning. Stop that. Is Bob or Stevie or Freddie preaching the word of God and then stop it and stay there? Um, The church is a mixed multitude. And by this, again, general lesson, the church does not save. Not just the church in my youth. The Protestant churches, you'll meet every once in a while will someone say, Mother Church saves. I'm thinking of a Protestant church here in town. Mother Church saves. To which I said to the minister, are are you out of your mind that the church saves? The church needs saving. The ministers need saving. We're, We're saved. Jesus does the saving. You don't come to any church through the administration of any sacrament and receive absolution of your sins. I mean in justification sense, in a penal sense. Simon was baptized and the the Holy Spirit said, what? You're still an unbeliever. You're still in your sins. I could baptize you a hundred times. And if you're not in Christ, you're just a wet unbeliever. Does that make sense? And the word is not made effectual unless the Holy Spirit applies it. That's why I read chapter 10. Tons of people have heard the Bible. Tons of people sit under the, the preaching of God's word and they remain unchanged. Do we not know gobs of Christians... I've been sitting in a church listening to the Bible since I was five and I'm 65 and it's not done anything for me. Man, you should be shaking in your boots. There's, it means you have no faith. That's why people can hear the word and remain unchanged. That's why they can receive the sacraments and remain unchanged. There's no faith. The Holy Spirit gives faith. So I love the word of God. I, the word of God is the primary means of grace, but it's not made effectual unless the Holy Spirit gives us faith. I love the sacraments, even though I barely understand about them. I know they point us to Jesus. But the sacraments themselves don't save. If I just give you a Bible, just having the Bible doesn't save you. We're joined to the Lord Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit gives us faith in that word. So Simon was baptized, but he was still an unbeliever. Does that make sense? And again, if you say, well, Shortman has a low view of the sacraments, I really don't. Or he has a low view of the word. I have an exceedingly high view of the word. But there are tons of people that sit under the ministry of the word and sacrament and they're not changed, even though they say they are, because they have no saving faith. And I'm just going to say this, and I promise I'll be quick. I'll quit. This false profession of faith occurs during a time of revival. And I know there are some Christians that don't like the term revival. Some do like the term revival. Some define it variously. I'm reading a book by Ian Murray on revival and revivalism, 1700s, 1800s. Um, I love the idea of revival. Here's my definition. It's when God, the Holy Spirit, in an extraordinary way, accompanies the ministry of the word, especially the gospel, and, um, and then people are converted in great numbers. They go from being unbelievers in Jesus to being believers, and then related to that, in my understanding of a, a, a revival, is the Holy Spirit takes tepid, true Christians, and then in a super, an extraordinary supernatural way, makes them zealous more, as our brother was teaching, more mature Christians. 
um, both of those things. And so what we have here is Simon is part of the group of lots of people are coming to Jesus Christ. From the, they're Samaritans. They uh, take some of Judaism and they join it to paganism, which is syncretism. They're unbelievers. They're pagans. And many of them come to know Jesus savingly. And so he's in a crowd, as it were, and he sees friends and family saying, oh, I love Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And then he makes his profession. That's significant for us, beloved. So many of us have grown up and we've watched um, Billy Graham. And um, Billy Graham has, it's a technique. I'm not picking on Billy Graham. And he wasn't the guy that he did this. This was Charles Finney. Charles Finney popularized what was known as the anxious bench. You'll, you'll know this. The come down the front. If you were raised in that church, I'm not picking on that church. There, it could be a legitimate use of Matthew 10. But the, the whole come down to the front, the buses will wait. And then a few people come down and then more people follow the few. And then more people follow the more. That's the power of social um, um, communal influence. Human beings, even people like me that think I'm like a the lone wolf. I, I'm born uh, basically a recluse, which is why I became a pastor. Even people like me, we are born social creatures, and the power of the group is massive. You can't even, you can't even really discern it. And I would argue this, the fear of man after the fall of Adam is massive. And so when people are coming down to the front, it might just be the power of the social group, which Simon, people are coming down to the front. Simon comes down to the front. And you think, well, we don't do things like Billy Graham. What about Sunday schools? How many Sunday school teachers say to their little kiddo class, who wants to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Say yes, raise your hand. And one little kiddo says, yes, I want to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And what do all the other kids do? Me too. Because they want to please their teacher. They want to please their mom. They want to please their dad. Or they, they don't want to be considered odd ducks from the group. That, that's part of this. It's not insignificant. It's not insignificant. And there's another thing in the text I do want to get at. Is that the people are receiving Jesus with great joy. There's a great deal of emotions. And I know some, I think love is an emotion. But let's not get into that. Uh, love is clearly an emotion. But um. There's a great outpouring of emotion when these people go from heathenism, they hear the gospel, and they receive Jesus, they're forgiven of their sins, and the text tells us they rejoice greatly. And I know the slam against Presbyterians is we are the frozen what? I totally love Jesus. I can't even take it how happy I am. (laughs) Right? We are the frozen chosen. Beloved, if you're a husband, you're a husband, you have a wife, do you look at, I hope you don't do this because you need marriage counseling. Do you look at your wife and go, I totally love you. I can't believe how much I love you. Boy, <laughs> Vegas, me I love you. You better say it with a little bounce in your step and a lilt in your voice because she doesn't believe it if you don't do that. How do you receive the love of God and the Christ of God without emotion? If, if you really believe you're a sinner on your way to everlasting perdition, and your brother Jesus snatches you from the fire and saves you by his blood, how would you not say, dear God in heaven, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I love you. You just saved me from the power of the devil. You've saved me from the dominion of sin. You saved me for yourself. What's happening? And so there's a group context and there's an emotional context. And if you don't think the power of group and the power of emotion is strong, go to a funeral. 
Go to a funeral. Everyone's crying at the funeral. What are you going to be doing in five seconds? Crying at the funeral is the power. So all of these things are coupled into Simon's profession. I'm not picking on Simon, but this is what's going on. And here's what I want to say, and then I, I really promise I'll quit. This is the preacher always makes these, land, these false landings. I want to ask this question. For everyone here, some, most I know, some I don't know. Answer this for yourself. Do you profess faith in Jesus? Do you profess to believe in Jesus? Do you say, Jesus is the one who pays for my sin. He's the one by his blood. I believe in Jesus. Credo, I believe. Do you personally say, I believe in Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Yes or no? Answer that in your head. Yes or no? Then here's the next question from this text. Do you say you believe in Jesus because you were raised by a mom and a dad? that taught you to say that and you're still living in the house and it would probably be uncomfortable if you said you didn't believe it and they say they do. Do you say that you believe it because you go to a church that says these things and I don't want to look like a goofball so I believe. Or do you say you believe it because some kind of social group for Simon it was like he wanted some money and some power. I believe because I don't want to be considered a heathen. I can believe because it will get me a good job. I believe because it's going to get me the Christian wife that I want to marry and I'm a heathen and I want her. Do you believe in Jesus when you're alone? Would you still trust in Jesus as your only hope in life and death if it was just you? Like, let's say your mom and dad said to you, we don't believe. We don't, we don't believe in Jesus. We're Hindus. We're Muslims. We're Buddhists. What, we, we just don't believe that Jesus is the way and the truth. Would you say, I love you, Mom and Dad. I do believe. Well, you're not coming to Thanksgiving. I'm really sorry about that. I s- still believe. Do you think about Jesus when you're alone? When you're alone. Do you ever think about Jesus? Does the name Jesus ever come in your head or your heart when you're alone? Do you ever use Jesus' name when you're alone, when you're walking around, do you ever sing to Jesus or sing about Jesus? Beloved, we are really who we are when we're alone. We are who we are really when we're alone. We're never alone because we're with God. But our faith is really proven. Will, will, will I own my faith alone? And will I own it against the crowd? Beloved, I hope on the last day, all, everybody here, we're all gathered around, no more sin, no more suffering, and we're all of us together, we're clothed in white, we're waving our palm branches, and we'll all be shown to be true lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.